does the name Perry Bernstein ring a bell? He was born in Queens, but after high school, for which I cannot confirm if he graduated or not, he moved to California to surf, do odd jobs, and sing in bands. He now goes by Perry Farrell, singer of such bands as Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros, also the figurehead and co-creator of Lollapalooza. Perry changed his last name to Farrell, which is actually his older brother's first name. The Bernstein brothers, Perry and Farrell, moved to Florida when Perry was like eight. Perry and his father did not get along so well in those days, so Perry left home as soon as he could. He took on the last name Farrell when he started singing because, to him, Perry Farrell sounded like peripheral. Peripheral. Did you know that? I didn't. I had been listening to Jane's Addiction since before Ben Caught Stealing ended up on MTV's Buzzbin. You remember the Buzzbin? Anyways, welcome to This Band Could Be Your Food. This episode is all about Jane's Addiction. Keep listening to learn interesting facts and the history surrounding all things Jane's Addiction, and we will figure out if Jane's Addiction were a food, what food would they be? If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can rate shows. And now, an in-depth look at Jane's Addiction and a recipe you can make at home. Here's the theme song. This thing could be your food. Let me start off with a trivia question. What do Jane's Addiction guitarist Dave Navarro and basketball wild man Dennis Rodman have in common? I'll tell you in a second. Thanks for checking out season two of This Band Could Be Your Food. I'm your host, musician and lover of cooking, Nathan Palin. If you're new here, what we do is talk about a different band every episode, discuss the history, the intricacies that make them tick, their origin stories, their music, and we'll determine what food they would be if they were a food. Once we do that, we're making that food. I'll tell you how to make that food, and we'll even eat it. I'll try to take out the eating sounds because that's gross. The following episode was recorded in Italy as I spent the better half of the summer there with my wife and child and my Italian family in-law. While I was there, I met a fellow Wisconsinite who coincidentally was marrying my wife's friend from back in school. His name is Nick Cialdini from the great city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He mentioned to me that his two favorite bands were The Grateful Dead and Jane's Addiction, which I thought, boy, those are really different bands. I also haven't thought about Jane's Addiction for a hot minute, so I figured, let's learn about Jane's Addiction. So I stopped caring about them just as soon as their original bass player, Eric Avery, was no longer part of the group. You know, the band broke up and then got back together with Flea. And Now, Eric Avery did rejoin Jane's Addiction in 2008 for a brief spell, but it didn't last. Feelings were hurt. But look, the internet at this moment in time seems to suggest that He's rejoining the band again. Exciting news. That said, while Nick and I was talking, we did not know any of this. But regardless, we're going to tell you the whole story of Jane's addiction right up to the point where Eric rejoins in 2022. So grab yourself a cup of Izzy's Coffee from Asheville, North Carolina, our sponsor. Join us for a cruise around Jane's addiction land. But before you do, just so you know, Dave Navarro and Dennis Rodman were both married to Carmen Electra just a useless fact for you. Now, on to the show. My good friend 
Setting up to separate songs Causing all the rain As you may or may not know, Jane's Addiction has three official albums with their first bass player, Eric Avery. Right. But 97 is when they got back together for the first time and brought in Flea as their bass player. And so to sort of commemorate with that, they did release that album, Kettle Whistle, which has B-sides, live tracks, and I guess some new tracks as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that. Are there- Flea seems like a strange choice. A I, very strange I, choice. I, I mean, obviously, like, they're the Lollapalooza. Right. Yeah. There's the Lollapalooza connection. There's maybe, like, chosen for star power, maybe chosen to kind of play to the crowd a little bit. Well, it's more because they all come from L.A., the underground is a very vibrant scene that's happening. And you've got Jane's Addiction there, Red Hot Chili Peppers, L7, Fishbone. Yes. All very much intertwined. Mm-hmm. They're all sort of hanging out at the, the Waverly House. Folks, brief history of what the Waverly House is, because this comes up. It's kind of like when you first go to college and all your friends rent some huge place that you can throw parties and all that. Perry essentially found this house, which was owned by a couple of L.A. police officers. So Perry just does a walk through the house, posing like, let's say, a gay interior design artist, convincing the cop owners that Perry is going to keep this place in immaculate shape. Well, as soon as he signs the lease, he invites all of his artists and music buddies to move in. And it becomes a clubhouse of the underground L.A. music scene. Carry on. That's where he sort of meets Eric Avery, and Eric Avery kind of comes over. Eric Avery is the bass player of Jane's Addiction. And in my opinion, maybe the the really one of the creative forces of the band. Absolutely a creative force, yes. The band is not really Jane's Addiction without Eric Avery. It's unfortunate, but it's completely understandable, and we'll get into it why Eric has withheld his position as the bass player in the band he did come in one time and we'll talk all about that but before we get into the total history of the band we're going to look at just a couple of facts so we can figure out what the food is now we had a difficult time nailing down the food because we are in the land of italian food so before i get to that let's talk about the history of the band they come from la essentially three members of the band are more or less born in California, within the L.A. vicinity. Perry Farrell, he was born in Queens and lived in Queens for about six years. His father was a jeweler. And this is what was surprising to me, is, and, and I don't know why this is surprising, but Perry is Jewish. His last name, his real last name is Bernstein. When Perry turned three and a half, his mother committed suicide. She was an artist. Uh, some say that it was due to some tension that was going on between her and her husband because the husband seems like he was a bit of a gangster you know like peddling jewels and walking around with a gun and over time he was less busy with the jeweling business as his clientele was getting older and dying and not buying things and it sounds like he was starting to get into some more gray area and perry was noticing this and not getting very excited about it um at a certain point the whole family relocated to florida And that's where Perry Farrell sort of spent his upbringing years, you know. Uh, He turns about 17, 18, and he claims he did, in fact, graduate high school. Um, And by some people's retelling, they say that he relocated to California, definitely by bus, brought a surfboard, brought some marijuana, brought a couple of dollars, and that's about it. Some say that he tried to attend college, but college was not his thing. 
Perry kind of dismisses the the entire idea that he went to college in the first place. And he's an avid surfer, right? An avid surfer. This is something I did not know about the band whatsoever. Both him and Eric Avery were both really into surfing. Um, Not so much Dave Navarro, because, uh, well, Dave Navarro was really into playing the guitar. And heroin. (laughs) But he has a very dark skeleton in his closet. Forgive me. It's not a skeleton, but it is a dark cloud. Dave Navarro's mother, Connie Navarro, was murdered in 1983 when Dave was 15, alongside her close friend at the hands of Ms. Navarro's ex-boyfriend. Dave was supposed to be there at the time, but was feeling like it wasn't a good situation, so he stayed at his father's. To make it worse, the killer went missing. He was never brought to trial until an episode of America's Most Wanted ran in 1991, and eight years later, somebody sent in a tip about his whereabouts. So he was brought to justice. Dave Navarro actually had to testify all those years later. He also made a documentary about it where he goes to the prison that the killer's spending the rest of his days to confront him. I hear it's a good doc. Carry on. And this obviously had a profound effect for Dave Navarro for the remainder of his life. Um, today, he's a big advocate about mental health, and you know we'll start to get into that. But it also sort of led him down the path of like very deep drug addiction. But his roots are actually Mexican. His father is a Mexican immigrant, and they came to Los Angeles. His mother was a white actress. Obviously, her dying really just destroyed Dave. Dave was also an only child. The point I'm making is like the Mexican connection for me, as well as the LA connection, they love their Mexican food there, California Mex food. So I had thought tacos, it's gotta be tacos. But what kind of tacos? So we talk about the surfing. Leads to, uh, for me, some kind of a seafood. And then in my head, I also like thought that they were really sporting these very vibrant dreadlocks during the heyday of Jane's addiction to me looks like an octopus, right? Yeah, octopus tacos is what you said. Yeah, octopus tacos, squid tacos, or squid, I thought as well. Anything with like the tentacles that are sort of flying, like the dreadlocks. And also very geographically relevant. You can get great octopus here in Italy. Yes. Virtually everywhere. I thought this was going to be a slam dunk. Yeah. Little did I know. Uh, I could not find and locate the ingredients that I needed for these tacos. We could get the, we certainly can get the octopus, no problem. No problem. That's a big, that's all over the place here. But tortillas, a little difficult. Cilantro, even more difficult. Yeah, cilantro we can get as a plant. And uh, and so we actually have some cilantro out out on our on oh, our wow. terrace. Nice. So the cilantro exists. Okay. The octopus exists. Yeah. Uh, I was in Rome yesterday. There is a like foreign importer, a store for like all things kind of foreign grocery. They're closed on Sundays. Ah, Couldn't okay. get the tortillas. This was the problem that I had as well, and I even brought cumin and chipotle with me, you know, because I was ready to do this, but. That's the only ingredient I have is, I, is, is cumin and chipotle. And it's too bad because I've never had an octopus taco. Fish tacos, sure. Octopus, yes. never. And is this something that you've had? I, no, it's not. Okay. Is this something you invented entirely? It's pretty much invented. I, I, I love tacos and it is something that I miss dearly about the U.S., yeah. Um, you're from Madison. I'm from Milwaukee. Yeah. We have incredible Mexican food in Milwaukee and street tacos everywhere. And, and so I re- try to recreate it here. Yeah. Uh, I make a lot of tacos and, nice. you know, I do. I, in fact, I brought a lot of salsa back with me 
when I was when I was back in the U.S. last time. Man, uh, I forgot the tortillas. I didn't bring any tortillas <laughs> with me. So, anyways, we had to put the kibosh. No octopus. No tacos. octopus tacos. So, but you had had an idea before, and you you presented it to me. And what was your idea? My idea was pasta a la vodka. Okay, which is a recipe that. I think has like a nightclub origin here in Italy. I think it was like a club owner probably who just had a surplus of vodka on hand and thought, what could I do with this? Oh, wow. And, and so it's essentially pancetta, onion, vodka, and a, and a pink sauce that's created from tomato sauce and cream together. Which is beautiful because it, it is a blending, which is what Jane's Addiction really did. Like Jane's Addiction, at its point in time, sort of nestled in between what became the new wave of alternative rock before it was called college rock, but they took the term alternative, which actually I'd find out the term alternative before the alternative rock that we know before used to be the type of radio station that would play deep album cuts. So some people would be like, all right, well, the hit is this, but you know, I really like track seven. So they'll play like track seven off of the James gang album or the Led Zeppelin album or whatnot. Um, this was the alternative, but for some reason, somewhere down the line, it was right when Jane's Addiction happened, the alternative nation, which some people say was a term that was coined by Perry Farrell. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely genre-defying, for sure. And yes. I, maybe the interesting thing, too, about, about pasta a la vodka is, as you could imagine, Italy doesn't you know, turn out a lot of like brand-new pasta recipes yeah. very often because they're very traditionalist here. So mm-hmm. like the fact that something like that could even catch on yeah. Here, you know. I was even skeptical that it was truly Italian. In my head, I'm like, that must yeah. be an American. Like, right. Like Alfredo sauce. It, it very much seems like it should be, right? Sure. And and so like. For you uh, listeners, Alfredo sauce does not exist in Italy. <laughs> it does not. No. It does not. And, you know, as, as someone who comes from America lives in Italy, I will occasionally indulge in a, a pasta Alfredo myself. Here in Italy? Uh, yes. Yeah. And they look at me like I'm insane. They have like something similar, uh, pasta or a, like cacio pepe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, is there any alteration to that? To yes, kind of entirely. They do not use heavy cream. Oh, okay. And 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 usually, even like, and when we make the pasta alla vodka later, they they don't use a lot of fresh whipping cream, like liquidy. It comes kind of in these cartons, and it's it's been sort of like compressed. And it's really, really thick. Oh, interesting. Um, so like the idea that you get half and half or heavy whipping cream the way they have it in the States. Not not very frequently do I see that here. Okay, cool. Well, I'm excited about it. But but there was there was there was a thing about it that to me made sense. And I, I don't know if uh, pasta with vodka sauce is Jane's addiction, but I would definitely say it is some of their songs. Some of their songs is for sure a vodka sauce. I, you know, I what I love making about it is just like the pure spectacle of getting a, a saute pan extremely hot and, and, and getting the pancetta right. And like, you know, you get the shallots or the onions in there. And when you just douse it with vodka, it's just this explosion of energy. Right. Yeah. And it's just like becomes the spectacle. And I thought like, you know, there's a certain parallel to that in some of their music, you know, when you think about ocean size and it kind of just starts out with this, you know, little acoustic guitar medley and you think, oh, this is probably just going to be, you know, another acoustic Jane's Addiction song. And then it's for 
virtually blasted with vodka and it erupts, you know, and like that eruption, I, I think is like very much emblematic of Jane's addiction. Totally. I'm with you 100%. All right. It's official. For today, Jane's addiction is pasta with vodka sauce. Here we go. Can I ask you a question about Jason? Hit me. Um, why was their first album a live album? I'll tell you why. Uh, it's very interesting. And they, Jane's Addiction, by doing what they did, set a template for a number of bands to follow. Jane's Addiction had already gotten the attention of Warner Brothers Records. They really wanted to sign him. But Jane's Addiction had said, we don't want our first record to come out on a major label because it will take away sort of our street cred. You know, keep in mind during this time, what was happening in the world was like Motley Crue and Poison and Rat. And like, that was the LA scene. It was just hair metal. And Jane's Addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers were just more of an organic, like we come from the bottom. We, we're the underground, we're the secret. You know, this is before internet. So they're like, this is the punk scene. You know, because before that, like LA had a killer punk scene. You had like Black Flag and- Guns, guns, try to troll. Whole hardcore thing, which was coming to an end basically around, you know, the early mid 80s, you know, say like 84, 85, um, and which is essentially when Perry Farrell is starting to sing. He, he realizes he can sing, he, he becomes a, a member of Psycom. I'm not sure it was on a label, but anyways, they wanted to have their first release be on an independent label. So they put together a management team that essentially managed the band, but also created this record label called Triple X Records. And they put this album out on their own, maybe a thousand copies, something like that. In fact, I, I often remember referring to that album, and I think a lot of people referred to that album as Triple X. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead of just how it was titled, which I think was just the eponymous. Yeah, it was just self-titled, Jane's Addiction, yeah. yeah. Um, but that was the reason. They kind of wanted to put, put out there that they are their own people and they're not going to be influenced by anybody else. And also sort of to give a sense to the record labels that they are capable of doing it themselves and their musical direction and their artistic direction can be trusted. You know, they can do it. They can do it. They know what they're doing. They don't need a label to come in and sort of, you know, put their thumb on what they're trying to achieve artistically. And there was great effects to that. After they put out that first record, even though they were ready to jump on board with Warner Brothers, all the rest of the record labels came knocking at their door. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned that they never ate better in their entire lives. Mm -hmm. Because every every label, MCA, Capital, blah, 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 would take them out and give them a pitch and try to talk them into being on their label. But they knew the entire time they're going to go with Warners. But also by doing that, it helps sweeten the type of deal that they can get with Warner Brothers. This reminds me of another story. There's another band that's been on Warner Brothers forever. It's, it's the Flaming Lips. 
And in fact, when they wanted to get the attention of Warner Brothers Music, this is when they were first getting started, they actually called Warner Brothers Records and said, yeah, we'd like to talk to Jane's Addiction. Because in their heads, they had assumed that all the bands on Warner Brothers like lived in different sections of the Warner Brothers record plant office or whatever. So they just called like, yeah, we just, we're just calling because we want to talk to Jane's Addiction real quick because we want to be on your label. So, you know, indirectly, the Flaming Lips being on a major label, or at least being on Warner Brothers, has a little bit to do with Jane's Addiction. Okay, carry on. So essentially, they got, at the time, one of the biggest advances that any band had gotten from the record label, something to the tune of like $250,000, $300,000 of an advance. They were also given 100% artistic freedom to do what they wanted to do, which they clearly used to maximum effect by constantly putting out things that was censored by MTV, censored by record store chains, you know. So getting their stuff out into the into the public's hands ended up being uh, a challenge, but also one of the things that attracted people to the band. Their very first video, I think, was for Mountain Song, which showed like a second of a booby. Right. And MTV would not show it. And and that's that's how that 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 film got yes. made, right? Yeah, they essentially ended up having to make their own additional film. Like, they put out, like, a VHS copy of it, so people could buy it if they wanted to. And, of course, it's like, oh, my God, the video we can't see. So, obviously, it sold. It did. Yeah. But, I, I, I remember seeing that video not, not long after it came out. It was one of my friends had it on VHS, and yeah. we watched it a lot. I never saw it. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a mix of docu-style footage you know, I, I haven't seen it now in 25 years, but um, I recall kind of these these scenes with Perry and, and uh, you know, these little sort of soirees with record execs and like these guys who are kind of coming up to him and trying to kind of like seduce him, like congratulate him on, it must have been right as um, Nothing Shocking was coming out. So yeah, I'm assuming so. that maybe those were like album release parties that they were seeing. Yeah, it sounds about right. And and then I also remember like at the very end of it, Thank You Boys is playing, which is a little jazz ditty mm-hmm. that they did. Yeah. And and they're all making out with yeah. each other <laughs> at the end of this video, like probably just to heighten the shock value. Yeah, and it clearly worked. It did. Yeah, I know it's very common knowledge that, that this band is sort of a heroin band. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at this point in time in their careers, they're at the height of their heroin usage. Eric Avery even OD'd and was sent to the hospital, almost missed a gig. They had to like go to the hospital to pull him out oh. and, um, you know, get him like prop him back up on stage. Mm-hmm. And then Perry Farrell even congratulated him on stage. Like, look at our boy, he OD'd and he's over there still playing bass. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we're talking about the nothing shocking era. Um, yeah. That first album, I, I think not a lot of the songs from the first album made it to nothing shocking. They didn't do a lot of studio versions of those songs. No, Jane Says is one of them. Jane Says makes it on. Which is kind of like some... Some refer to it as their stairway to heaven. I think three days is their stairway to heaven, frankly. Three days 
Uh, but Jane says, I mean, in, encapsulates, you know, the name of the band, which is about this woman, Jane Bainter. Jane Bainter was the first woman to move into that Waverly house I was telling you about, the, the house that Perry Farrell had owned and like different people were sort of moving in. And she was A, the first woman, and B, the first heroin junkie to join to join the group. And in fact, that was part of their initial rules when they had that house, as they said, no junkies, no women, it's just going to be dudes. And then Perry brought her in and then obviously the dynamics changed. So he broke... Both, but he broke both rules with one person. With one swoop, yes. But he was very enchanted by her. She was a very fun woman. Uh, yes, loved to do the heroin, loved to wear wigs. And in fact, Jane says is basically a firsthand account of, you know, who that woman is, Jane. Like, mm-hmm. going to kick tomorrow. Going to go away to Spain. It's all... Like, that was always her thing. She's going to kick, you know. Uh, she was always sent to go to the dealers to go get the heroin. And she didn't care because... You know, she knew that nobody else liked her in the house. It's all like, it's a biographical song. It's all literal. And I think that's interesting about Jane's addiction is I get the sense that not a lot is imagined that like really he's writing like exactly kind of what he's seeing or he's writing like personal accounts. Yes. He's writing firsthand accounts of his life. Yes. I have no evidence of this, but I'm assuming probably he did get caught stealing when he was five. Uh, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be. Yeah. But yeah, that's part of like the brilliance of Jane's addiction is, is his lyric writings. I mean, he's a, clearly a masterful lyricist, poet. Yes. You know, like the man is a very true and real artist in every sense of the word. He's just not rooted in reality, you know, which makes for great art and great poetry. Um, mm. but, but also great poetry is often rooted in something real. And he was able to do that. But, I mean, part of it is he was living this crazy, surreal life yeah. in L.A., you know, with all the things that were going on. Um, another thing about the band in their early beginnings is it's true. They were f- originally funded by a high-price hooker. She was a woman who was, like, financing a lot of their shows and their tours and, like, they were this, these productions that they would put together. She would front the money. Um, but she was like, her clientele was like super rich guys. So that was sort of like, you know, they're in, you don't see that much of that today. No, <laughs> from what I can tell, No, you know, um, but that's all a part of like, I guess, Perry Farrell's charm. Now, when I saw him facially speaking, I saw the nose. And when I see that nose these days, I go, it must be Italian. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a little bit of that look for sure. Right. Yeah. 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 But like the androgynous thing and that, you know, when you said octopus tacos, I thought it was just kind of because he's so sinewy and sort of like tentacly in the way he moves. Yeah, he does almost, look like he does look like an octopus in the ocean. Right, just like he's bubble, just bubble, in bubble, water bubble. and he's floating about, uh, you know, like a squid or yes. a jellyfish. Yes, there, that's that visual element is there. So let me take a second and talk about what, what's really interesting about the combination of those four guys. Jane's addiction started with Eric Avery and Perry Farrell. Perry Farrell was in a band called Psycom that was becoming more and more religious. Uh, I believe there was like some Buddhism sort of things happening in there. And Perry was just feeling that that was restrictive of what it was that they wanted to do. This was another reason why I wanted to do the octopus taco, because typically Jews do not eat octopus Mm -hmm. or like that type of seafood, crustaceans kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. They consider them to be like bugs, so Mm -hmm. they they don't eat them. Um, so I felt that that was also another, like, you know, screw you to religion as far as like Mm -hmm. his humble beginnings. Anyways, 
Perry wanted to start something different, he'd hooked up with Eric, Eric Avery, and essentially Jane's Addiction just started out just the two of them, which explains a lot of their songs, which are frequently start out with these bass lines, and then Perry sort of using this vocal box that has this delay on it and creates all of these effects. Like, you know, his voice is never dry. It's always just saturated with reverb and delay. It's like, blah, 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 blah. And he messes around with this And that, those were the, the early beginnings. I Would For You kind of comes to mind as one of yeah, those songs. Yeah, Summertime Rolls. Yep. There weren't a lot of bands out there who were just writing bass-driven ballads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Eric's big influences at that time were like New Order and Joy Division. I've been waiting for a guy to come and take me by the hand. Things, things of that nature, like the English sort of early, um, not new wave, but I mean, I think we, we came on to call it goth at a certain point, but it wasn't known as goth then. Mm-hmm. But that, that's where those guys were sort of coming from. They yeah. were listening to Velvet Underground and like this really moody... You know, I, I guess let's say sort of like heroin sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Anyways, on the other side of the coin, you've got Dave Navarro and Stephen Perkins. Now, these guys are well-to-do fellas. Their families have money. Like, they didn't grow up poor. Uh, Dave Navarro just wanted to be a guitar player. And he was also extremely spoiled by his parents. And, of course, after his mother had passed away so tragically, it, you know, it, it sort of became even more like, you know, we're just going to give everything to Dave to make him happy, you know, to try to help him get through this time, including Stephen Perkins. Stephen Perkins was his best friend. They had just sort of met six months, maybe nine months before his mother had passed. And Steve sort of took it on himself to sort of be there for Dave and, and help him get through the time. And they did so by, you know, doing coke and drinking and and playing lots of music because Stephen Perkins was a very dedicated drummer and obviously Dave Navarro was a guitar virtuoso. So they were playing things like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and things like that. They were playing Hesher metal. And in fact, Eric had recalled that he had sort of jammed with them one time and they wanted to play this type of music. And Eric is like, no, nope, that's not my thing. I'm, I'm into like Joy Division and punk. Bauhaus or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, that, you know, that's why I'm talking about like Jane's Addiction really just being the divider between, you know, the hair metal that was going on. Mm-hmm. which sort of ended right at Guns N' Roses. Guns yeah. N' Roses was sort of like the last of those bands, even though Guns N' Roses was also sort of a middle finger to to like poison and yeah. and and Motley Crue but still you know kind of like wearing the he- the heavy metal the glam metal hairstyles that was going on at that time but then Jane's Addiction was basically if Guns N' Roses was the end of that chapter Jane's Addiction was the beginning of the next chapter I, that's really interesting. Yeah, because you do you hear that melding of styles a little bit in their music. And it's yeah. funny, like the blueprint for that is like entirely there on that first live album, I think. For sure. You yeah. know, you, you get this like kind of hard driven, sustained rock that yeah. that's there kind of throughout. But then they kind of like they downshift occasionally songs like I would for you songs where it's just suddenly like, it's kind of bass driven They They go really slow. Yeah. There's, you sort of mentioned that James is 
like in those early days is kind of like a multitude of different bands, multitude of different bands. You know, I, I mean, you, you even hear like, you know, a song like chip away, which is just, which is just Stephen Perkins. And it, it's almost like a drumline track. Yeah. It's you, funky. I mean, one thing about these guys is they were really into funk. They were really into, you know, sort of the grateful dead thing. I mean, that's where Stephen Perkins comes from. Like the drum circle. Yeah. Sort of ethos of like yeah. California barefoot and style. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also, by the way, not blues. Mm-hmm. They were very against being any sort of, like having any blues influences, a la, let's say, Led Zeppelin. Sure. So that's why they were always a little confused about being compared to Led Zeppelin. I think it was mostly because of the vocal style. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but also being a powerhouse band. Um, but for them, they wanted to stay away from that. They, yeah. were, they were looking more progressive as, as far as like, you know, what the New Order guys were doing. Um, but then also sort of bringing in the tribal music and later on, even some like Indian influences as well. Uh, what is it? Uh, of course, the song, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, Eric Avery didn't play on that song because he was in a fight with the band. More on that later. <laughs> um, so anyways, back to the initial story. Eric Avery's sister was dating Stephen Perkins at the time. And Eric Avery's sister kept suggesting to them, you should get Steven here to try out mm-hmm. because they were needing a drummer. And they also had a guitar player that they didn't like very much. And they said, well, bring, please just let me, let me bring in my boyfriend. And Eric kept saying, well, I jammed with him the one time and all he wanted to do was metal. I don't think he's going to be the right guy. But then Steven shows up and propels the band, basically just gets the job immediately. He's like, all right, I was wrong maybe we can have some real musicians in this band, yeah. <laughs> you know, because before that everyone's like self-taught, you know, like punk. And that's when Steven says, Hey, do you mind uh, if my buddy Dave comes in and plays some guitar and we'll try that out. And then sure enough, Dave comes in and just wows him because mm-hmm. he's really, truly like a rock God virtuoso. Sure. And then there you go. Now the lineup is set. So it, it is definitely this fusion within the band of like the old school metal guys. And then, the progressive guys that are, you know, looking to the future is, you know, like what alternative music was to become mm-hmm. at that point. And it's true that, like, I mean, you know, that's that's what creativity is in a way is combination. You know, yeah. it's like finding new combinations of of styles and influences. Nothing, you know, comes out of nothing, right? Of and and they 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 just got this lightning almost. And, and in a way, it's funny because you could almost imagine isolating some of those tracks, like some of those bass tracks, for example, and they're kind of rollicking and they're like, you know, yeah. like you could almost like put a ukulele against some of those bass tracks. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then it's the same thing, you know, with some of Dave's playing, you know, yeah. like remove some of the distortion a little bit and you've got like almost like a 70s funk guitar in yeah, a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and they'll do that within a song too. Like, do 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 do. It's the right. same bass line, the yeah. whole song. Yeah. You know, with a couple of changes. At the beginning, it's this very mellow thing. And then later on, it's a full on rock assault. Still, same yeah. bass line. Right. It works for most things. If that was just sped up a little bit, it could have been like an 80s sitcom theme song almost. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Indeed, there's a lot of versatility with Eric Avery's bass playing. You know, and he wasn't a rock god virtuoso, but he had a style. And 
I mean, that's the problem Jane's Addiction is having these days with their constant trying to get back together. Um, mm-hmm. And Eric keeps saying no because they had, they had a bad split. Um, and it's really both of their faults. By both of theirs, it's, the, the rift is more or less between Eric and Perry. And it's financial, I'm assuming? Well, it's partially financial. The, that There was a moment after they had already created the album nothing shocking where their lawyer said, okay, we need to decide what the pay cut is going to be. And Perry insisted that since he was the lyricist, mm-hmm. that he should get 50% of all earnings. Mm. And then the remainder, the music mm. is its own entity and it should be divided evenly. So essentially what had happened is Perry is already getting 50%. And then that other 50% is split up four ways. So therefore, Perry is getting 62 and a half. Eric is getting 12 and a half. Mm. Stephen, 12 and a half. Dave, 12 and a half. Eric took uh, great offense to this. But Perry put his foot down and basically said, I'm not going to move forward unless this is the deal. Now, this, I think, becomes a tactic that Perry uses in the future because the other members of the group, other than Stephen, they're still really into the heroin. So... You know, their their ability to be cognizant of what's happening is is sort of compromised because in the, the back of their mind, they're thinking about scoring drugs or they're nodding off or they're not really there. Um, and they're like, okay, you need to sign this and you need to agree this or else, or, or else the band is over. It's a preposterous arrangement, though. When you think about it, yeah, great lyricist. Perhaps not legendary. I mean, I think about I think about songs like a uh, standing in the shower thinking <laughs> a song that's literally about the water temperature of his shower. Yeah. And you know, it's great. How hot is it? Perry? How hot is your shower? Yeah. But like that he's, he's, what are you doing and, right now? <laughs> <laughs> he's a, exactly. Yeah. And, and he was so literal. I think about some of his lyrics and they like, it was just kind of, you know, and I, I shouldn't say literal, but he was, he was oh, an yeah, observational yeah. lyricist. For right. Sure. Yeah. And, and so he was kind of looking around and he was noticing these people. And then like some of them also are deeply personal, like then she did and had a dad and you can yes. like kind of tell like it's about like, all of this trauma yeah, from his a, childhood. That had a dad is about his dad who passed yep. away. Let me interrupt here for a second. First off to say that the song Had a Dad was not about Perry Farrell's father. Now he had his own problems with his father, so maybe some of this carried over, but The idea for the lyrical content of Had a Dad apparently stems from Eric Avery discovering that he had a different biological father. Now, the thing about this is Eric Avery's father is documented to be Brian Avery, who is an actor best known for playing Carl Smith in the movie The Graduate, the guy who keeps Dustin Hoffman from marrying Catherine Ross. He also is a big character in a bunch of other stuff, but apparently... Growing up in the Avery household was hit or miss. If he had a gig, the family was eating and having a great time. If he didn't have a gig, the family was roughing it. So anyways, Eric Avery's history is well protected on the internet. It seems Eric holds the cards pretty close to his chest. So I'll stop there. What I'm trying to say is I don't know. Back to the show. Um, then she did is about his his mother committing suicide. Right. So yeah, I mean they have these very tragic things that happen to them in their lives that they can use as to sort of reflect what's going on 
you know, with their lives and cre- you know, create this amazing art out of it. But imagine if Bernie Taupin told Elton John, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to need 60% yeah. of all royalties because without the words. Sure. I mean, perhaps this was like, well, maybe Perry used that exact thing. It's words and music. Words is one thing. Music is another thing. Mm-hmm. But still, like the bands that are successful are the bands that split the royalties all the way down the middle. Examples are U2 and R.E.M. That's what they've done. And yeah. they have been able to exist as long as they dang well want to. And when they split up, there's no animosity. But when you bring money into the picture, it's always going to be a tricky, a slippery slope. I'm attracted to great lyricists. I mean, it's one of like the driving things about kind of my music selection and and who I choose to listen to and and what I like. And yet Jane's Addiction for me is not necessarily one of those bands. Like for me, they could have been entirely instrumental. Yeah. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that necessarily. It's hard but. to say because, you know, when, when, when the band did split up after Ritual, there were two camps. You had Deconstruction, which was Dave Navarro and Eric Avery. Yeah. And I had thought, oh, this band's going to be amazing. Right. And, and they were okay. Yeah. You know, they had a song I really liked, um, but the rest of it, I think I might have was able to listen to the record twice. Yeah, who you know. sang in that band? Uh, Eric Avery did. Okay, not a not a solid singer, right? Really, uh, and in fact, I think that's why Dave sort of backed out sure. because he wasn't really into his singing. And obviously, Porno for Pyros became much more commercially successful. Whereas. Jane's Addiction was a heroin band. Mm-hmm. It turns out Porn for Pyros was a crack band. No. They were crazy heavy into crack. Really? Yeah. 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 Uh, this is like Perry truly becoming a real junkie. Yeah. Um, there's sort of a divide. When, when he was in Jane's Addiction, he was very aware of the fact that if he sings on heroin, because the man has a very high voice, mm-hmm. heroin restricts your vocal cords. And oh. so he knew he could not go travel on the road and you know, need to get high on heroin. Uh, not true for Dave Navarro. Dave Navarro spent most of Jane's Addiction practically nodding out. And I think about, you know that video, Stop? Yeah. You know, like there's Dave sort of doing his guitar line and then he sort of stops and then they have that vocal line, get back that automobile. And Dave's like supposed to sing along. He kind of like nods out in between his guitar solo and about to sing the second half of those lines. So check it out sometime. And I'm assuming that it was really the drug use that was kind of the, the impetus uh, behind their demise. No, is that what happened? For sure. I mean, for sure. But it, what, what turned into is, is, Eric becomes sober. Okay. After his overdose, he sort of has like a realization that he can't continue on this way. So he becomes sober. Dave Navarro gets even more into heroin than he's ever been. Yeah. Uh, according to his recollection, as they were starting to record Ritual Dilo Habitual, he has about five minutes of memory of recording any of it. Yeah. Perry Farrell is just sort of being crazy insane. Uh, kind of dictating to the band what it is that they need to do. Mm-hmm. They sort of said in the studio, he was, you know, if, if somebody wasn't doing something to his liking, he'd say, no, 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 you, your guitar line is wrong. And he would sing how he want the guitar line to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric was getting fed up with this whole thing. Yeah. And in fact, 
this is when he decided when they were doing the song, of course, which has this sort of Indian flair, he said, you know what? I'm done. And he kind of walked out of the studio and they ended up having to get their engineer to play bass on the song. So it's oh. the only song of that time where Eric Avery isn't playing isn't bass. Playing. Yeah. Some other guy is doing it. Eric, in retrospect, looks back and goes, "Yeah, I was kind of pouting." Um, but rightfully so. I mean, if you're if you're the only sober person in that environment, and and that environment is that is that out of control? Yeah, and it sounds like it was. It was. And Perry Farrell, for all of his good and bad, is the kind of guy that isn't going to tell other people what they can and can't do drug-wise. And that sure. includes himself. And yeah. he is not going to stop doing what he's doing because anybody else is is or isn't doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that becomes a problem. You know, Eric is obviously like, okay, I'm not going to do it. But in another way, Perry's kind of just like throwing it in his face. Sure. In a way. Um, so that's one rift. Mm-hmm. Then there's another big rift. Um, and it involves Perry's girlfriend, Casey, at the time. Now, Casey Nikolai... Uh, her involvement with the group cannot be understated because she ends up being sort of the co-conspirator art director for all things Jane's. She just is always there helping the band kind of pick out their clothes, making sure they look together because initially Jane's addiction looks like four random dudes that they found, you know, mm-hmm. at rave and sort of said, okay, you guys stand together. We can take a picture of you. <laughs> they look like totally different guys. Um, Casey was kind of there to, to sort of help them, Coalesce into something that was more, you know, fluid and and um, you know, like their own gang. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, just showered them in corsets. And so, you know, one day Dave was wearing the corset. The next day, you know, Perry was, etc. Um, and also, you know, helped with the uh, the artwork. Famously, on the cover of Nothing Shocking, the images of Siamese twins, which are basically plaster casts of Casey. Uh, with their hair on fire, um, sitting on a rocking chair that, uh, instead of rocking forward and backwards, rocks side to side. Perry apparently had this as a dream and so wanted to recreate it. And on Warner Brothers Dollar, hired an artist to come in and start to put this together. And he was around long enough to, for Perry to see how he was doing it the way that he was doing it, and then promptly fired him. Mm-hmm. And then did the artwork himself, then did the plastering of Casey's face and all of that, and then took 100% credit for it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, I mean, just saying. Perry's a little, little shady sometimes. But yeah, those faces, those those characters, the, those are of Casey. Um, Casey also appears on the cover of Ritual Dilo Habitual. Uh, Ritual Dilo Habitual, is, as you can see, is of three people, which is Perry Farrell, Casey, and then a third girl, Zionian blue, which was, I, as I recall, referenced in a lyric, was it not? Very much so. Three days is basically right. about about their sort of three days of bliss, okay, of drug doing and sex and yeah. song listening. But they just sort of did three days. Tragically, I mean, it didn't end at this moment, but you know, shortly after this woman, Zionian blue, had. Uh, overdosed and, and died. Mm. Um, so essentially, this 
cover of Ritual Dilo Habitual is a shrine, more or less, and kind of done in sort of like a like a Latino shrine style where there's like oranges and yes. things and um and but it it is to commemorate you know her you know her existence and her influence on Perry and them at the time. Uh meanwhile uh the girl's like family is infuriated that you know <laughs> her life has been diminished like her whole life has been diminished as like the girl who had a threesome with the guy from Jane's addiction and is on the cover and like had an overdose. So wait, was was the the album cover was censored? I mean, I recall having Ritual de la Habitual Did you on have CD. Yeah, and I had it was just it was just a white cover. Oh yeah, that was that was the response because the record company said had convinced them to put out a second cover because oh. they said most record stores are not going to put this on there because it's like the, the height of PMRC. Yep. Um, you know, like Tipagore and all that yep. stuff. So. So they said, fine, we're, we'll just put out a second version that you can put in Walmart and Target and whatever, all these stores. Uh, and that's what they did. And sure enough, it, like the controversy worked. Everybody wanted to get the original copy. Nobody wanted to buy the censored cover. So most people, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe you're like me. Did you get your, C- your CD through like uh, Columbia House? It might have been. <laughs> that's where I got mine. Yeah. Um, um, but these days, that version is is highly coveted. It's like, oh really? Yeah, that there's very few copies of those. Like they had the initial run, and then for future pressings, it was always the original cover of like the threesome and the shrine huh. and all that. Let's see if I can pick that up. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Kind of a weird thing. So yeah, they they put out. If you if you don't know, they put out an additional copy that is just black and white and yeah. just lists. I think the um, the freedom of speech amendment. Oh, sure. Constitutional amendment yep. on the front cover, and that's that was their way around it. Hmm. And the controversy, uh, you know, worked in their favor. So let's talk about their commercial success for a little bit, and sure. specifically because they had they had one MTV hit. Yeah. Call it call it that. Been caught stealing. Been caught stealing. And and in my mind, I think there is this other band that exists within Jane's addiction. And it has kind of these, these ska influences. Mm. You hear it really prominently in idiots rule. They actually had a horn section come in. Yeah. Yeah. And then you hear it also in, which the horn section was actually consisted of members, consisted of members of fishbone and the red hot chili peppers. Fleet plays trumpet on that. It's you. I can hear the fishbone influence for sure. in that band. Yeah. For some reason, Fishbone never achieved that kind of commercial success that Jane's did. They never did, no. And it might have just been like that, you know, and give credit to Perry's stylist and like the artistry of Jane's addiction. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, you know, that was probably something that very de- much defined Perry was like the the artistry and he was also probably as a businessman really really savvy and kind of knew you know how to like peak the public's imagination and sure uh definitely in those early days he was very smart at being on like behind the ball at all times he was smart enough not to get too heavy into drugs so that he could have a clear head. Um, like you think about like the house that they all lived in, you know, he was the guy who, who like put the money 
in to like pay for the rent and he would bring in like junkies and, and yeah. if they if they didn't have the money you know he would still for, foot the bill like he was a super hard worker and like always had this work ethic which i think stems from his upbringing in queens working for his father sure um I, actually i should i should amend that and say florida because eventually they moved to florida but apparently they had had a deal where perry was going to work for his father and his father was holding all the money and told perry you know when you turn 18 i'm going to give you all of this money mm-hmm. and then you're going to have a chunk to go to college or do this or that or whatever um, but by the time perry reached that age his dad said i don't have any money for you so you know, Perry had built up this work ethic and saw nothing from it. Okay. And, and with sort of that, you know, piss and vinegar, you know, mm-hmm. that's when he went to Flo- uh, went to California and said, screw you, dad, I'm going to show you what I can be. And so yeah. their relationship was kind of volatile at that point because Perry really wanted to show his dad that he could be who he, who he was, this artist. And at what, what, time, what age was Perry when his father passed away? That I don't know. Okay. It's later in life. I want to. It must be around the writing of of uh, nothing shocking. Sure. Because there is a bit of time. Like, I think that that album comes out when he's about twenty seven or twenty eight. Yeah. So by like rock star standards, that's pretty old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's always been the older member of the group. Uh, the rest of the guys are all like, you know. At the time, when he when they joins the group, those guys are like seventeen and eighteen years old. Like yeah. Dave Navarro is like not even old enough to be in bars when they first start doing their sure. their first gigs. Um, so you know, Perry just sort of becomes the father figure. Yeah, um, and I guess it's like a, a role that he's always been comfortable in. Like yeah. he likes being the Type A personality and yeah. pushing the buttons and making the calls and you know mm-hmm. like being the guy. Um, yeah, and his, obviously his business business savviness has been. You know the 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 reason why that band was able to get onto the scene in the first place, mm-hmm. but he was also, I think, smart enough to get the right people to work for him as well. Yeah. Um, early on, even before they had their major record label, they had a really solid booking agency, um, and it's this booking agency that also helped Perry create. Lollapalooza. I was just going to ask, yeah, because it, that may have been his biggest commercial success. Assuming, I mean, he still owns presumably the the creative rights and and the management of that festival. Yeah, he may or may not. Yeah, he he probably has like a percentage deal. I don't sure. I'm, it's hard to say if he has any sort of like say as to. Who I'm I'm assuming he no longer curates it based on the bands that they're booking at Lollapalooza now. Yeah. No, I mean, the whole thing sort of changed. And it's funny, actually, though, like the concept of Lollapalooza sort of came to the heads of, of that booking agency, as well as Stephen Perkins. They were at Glastonbury. England really had their music festivals, like, solid. But there was nothing like that in America at the time. So it was those guys that were over there. And I think I feel like James was supposed to play, but Perry had to back out for some reason. And as they were there, they, they had sort of said, we should start something. Um, and when they brought the idea to Perry, it was Perry that, you know, sort of really curated what the entire thing was going to be about. Yeah. Um, and it, it being about mixing all these different genres and all these different influences, um, which had never really been done at that time, and, and put together a package of bands that, you sure. know, on paper don't really make sense. But, you know, like that, the, the scene that was happening at that time was, you know, because of like alternative music, people's minds were opening up to listening to different kinds of musics and accepting like a festival that'll have hip hop 
and hardcore and psychedelic yeah. and industrial and right. you know a ska band and rage against the machine yeah, yeah bad yeah. brains yeah primus uh-huh i did bad brains ever play i i i would assume so Sorry, I had to do a fact check because it seems Bad Brains should have been in Lollapalooza, and they were, but not until 2013 in Chile. So this is a good number of years after the initial touring Lollapalooza, the classic one through, I don't know how many did, seven, something like that. Carry on. But I, I'm just guessing. Sure. I, I yeah. recall seeing an Alpine Valley in Milwaukee. It was the one that was headlined by Primus. Was yeah. that the I saw third that one? one? Yeah. That was the third one. Were, yeah. were we both Rage at that show? I went to the one in Chicago. Okay. But I went to the Lollapalooza the year before. Yeah. Which was Lush, uh, a new band called Pearl Jam. Um, yep. Ministry played, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Ministry. Ice Cube. Yes. Soundgarden. Who am I missing? A, a great lineup. Yeah. A great lineup, great lineup. including yeah. Ice Cube, you know. Yeah. Just throw him in there, too. Yeah, Why yeah. not? Yeah. But the original one, the original one had, it had uh, Butthole Surfers, Ice T, and Body Count, which was oh, yeah. a super exciting time, you know, because a like, mm-hmm. cop killer was just happening, and that was oh, yeah. very super influential. Um, and then, yeah, Jane's Addiction. Initially, they thought it was going to be a one-time thing, this, this Lala Blues. Sure. The, this tour was going to be one and done because it was Jane's Addiction's official ending. Yeah. Because they no longer could stand each other. Yeah. So at most of these shows, like Dave Navarro was, you know, becoming, you know, super dependent on heroin and getting into fights on stage with Perry Farrell. Most mm-hmm. famously, the very first show uh, just outside of Phoenix, they had a, a short set because they started fighting on stage and Dave knocked over his guitar amplifiers and smashed his guitar. And they go off stage <laughs> and then they come back and then they do an encore, uh, which ends with Dave now throwing his guitar in the audience and knocking yeah. his amp over again and leaving. Uh, meanwhile, Eric Avery has basically said, you know, once this is all over, I'm done yeah. and he's clean. So he just kind of shows up for the show and then goes back to his hotel afterwards. Um, Steven is like the puppy dog of the band. Stephen Perkins never got hooked on heroin. He was just always like the blue sunny day. He was like, come on, guys, everything's going to be great. Always stayed friends with everybody. Uh-huh. Um, and man, can you imagine having to, because first he was doing this whole mess of Jane's addiction, then it goes on to Porno for Pyros, which the stories I've read in Porno for Pyros are just like. Even more volatile? Oh my God. Folks, I'm sorry, but we're going to put an end to the conversation right here. We'll call this part one. If you want to listen to part two, this is what I need you to do. Reach out to me and let me know that you're interested in becoming a member of this bank of beer food. If there are enough folks out there that are interested in this podcast and even becoming like, say, a subscribed member, then I'm going to start posting up all this extra footage that I have. You know, I never put out part two of The Minutemen. There's a bunch more information that I have for you that me and Jeanette talked about. This episode, we're going to get into, you know, when Dave Navarro became a member of Guns N' Roses, the ill-fated reunion of all four members of Jane's Addiction, including Eric Avery and their attempts at recording new material, all of the seedy stories behind Porno for Pyros, and, and many more things. Lots of things. So if you're not following me on Instagram, this bank of beer food on Instagram or this bank of beer food on Facebook, get up on one of those sites or www.thisbankofbeerfood.com. 
get on there. Send me a message. Let me know you're interested in becoming a part of this new membership community. And doggone it, if you're into it, I'm into it. I have lots more, tons of footage, lots of information for you. You let me know how you feel about it. If you're in, I'm in. Let's do this together, everybody. Until then, let's eat. Let me tell you what happens now. Nick and I go into his kitchen and we start to make this pasta, pasta a la vodka sauce. And we practically burn his kitchen down. And if you'd like to see us practically burn his kitchen down, check out our Instagram site and you will see a lovely video of us burning his kitchen down. And then saving it and then eating a delicious pasta. So here is us enjoying the delicious pasta. Wow. <laughs> that was amazing. That was, we were looking for a spectacle and we got, we got spectacle. We got some pyrotechnics. Yes, folks, if you uh, go on the Instagram, if you haven't seen it yet, um, we are sitting in front of a delicious plate of, uh, how do you say it correctly? Pasta a la vodka. Pasta a la vodka. Now, traditionally you'd make this with penne, but as we know, Jane's Addiction is anything but traditional. So we use fettuccine, you know? Yeah, tallitelle. Tallitelle, yeah. Do you want to uh, tell the listeners how, how this is made? Sure. I mean, it's a relatively simple, straightforward recipe. Um, we cut up some pancetta into sometimes some people like to cube it. We did like just kind of like tiny one inch strips. Mm-hmm. Um, we we cooked that, um, got it nice and crispy. Mm-hmm. And at some point I had added shallots. Yeah. Um, I let that cook all together. Maybe just a little bit of olive oil, not we much. We did about four shallots, I'd say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I withheld some of it because I thought, like, I don't want to overpower it too okay. much, especially sure. for people who don't particularly like onion. Okay. I do, but yeah. not everyone does. Okay. Um, and then, uh, in a true Jane's Addiction fashion, about at, at that moment, you hit it with, with vodka. Yeah, we did about a just short, a shy of a cup of vodka. A cup of vodka, yeah. Yeah. Um, And almost burned the entire kitchen down. It did. It it really erupted on me. It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I I was looking for that kind of like that 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 burst that 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 spectacle. Uh, I may have gone a little too far with it. A little too far. No such thing, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) That's what that's what Perry would tell you. You know, the kitchen is still intact, so Uh I would say it was the right amount of vodka. Now, I got a great video of it, too. I, I would say I'm just doing that to impress my friends. Like, if you want to avoid the giant fire that may ensue, what you do is you put the tomato sauce in first. So yeah, to finish the recipe, tomato sauce, and then as you add the pasta, whether it's penne or whatever you're going to use, then you, you add heavy cream. But you're and not going to get the, the explosion if you you're not. You're not going to get that, no. But it's going to be safer. So I just want to... Okay. But isn't isn't part of like the burning of the vodka, like the literal burning, doesn't that that's contribute the part that, to some of the flavor? That's, the, is that that's just, the part that I really enjoy. Yeah, that's yeah. really... Yeah. yeah that, that, I mean, it was that... Right. That sold me on this being, yeah. being a food. And if you, if you shake it or if you give it like a little bit of a wrist flip, like the, it's, it's going to erupt on you versus sure. if you just kind of let it sit, it'll just sort of, sort of slowly burn out. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say we used probably like a pint of fresh tomatoes uh-huh. um, that we cut in half and sort of squeezed the seeds out into the sink. And typically it's better to, to, if you can, 
remove your seeds from your tomatoes because they have sort of a bitter flavor yeah. to them. Um, it's really good. It turned out really great. Yeah, it's delicious. You know, I think one of the secrets is, you know, we went to the butcher right next door and got, you know, relatively like good fresh pancetta. Yeah. You can buy it kind of pre-cubed at the grocery store. That also works. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the pancetta in, 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 in Italy, I mean, these, these just look like big, thick slices of bacon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't, if you, if you have bacon sitting at home, like thick cut bacon, you can use that. Um, but usually that's a little bit more smoky, like pancetta, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's essentially the same cut of meat if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. You could use, you could, if you're, if, if you're in America and you just got happen to have a, like a, you know, a pack of hickory smoked bacon in your fridge, cut that up into little strips, like tiny pieces and use that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So we did that. You put in a jar of tomato sauce. What was that? Like, was that like a 28 ouncer? Yeah. A 14 ouncer something like that. Yeah. Quite a bit. A good, cause we made a lot. We were making, we were serving for four adults and four kids. Correct. So, yeah. Um, and then I would say almost a pack and a half of pasta, like your typical pack is 500 Mm -hmm. milligrams. And, uh, we, we threw in a a heaping bit more and it's a great recipe. It's, it couldn't be simpler to make in terms of a pasta that like just turns out really great with like few ingredients, not a lot of prep cooking. Yeah. We, you started the, the water boiling. Yeah. Before we did anything. Yep. And by the time that it was boiling, we had the pasta in yep. and cooked. Everything yep. else was done and ready to go. So, yeah, delightful. And, you know, I'm glad that we went Italian mm-hmm. with the cuisine for this. It, it, I know that I was thinking Mexican food, but, you know, we're here with the best ingredients that, you know, Italian food has to offer. It's true. So, I mean, this, this is very nice pasta. These tomatoes are grown on Italian soil. You know, maybe they were picked off the vine a couple of few days ago, and that's about it. I mean, you could always, almost imagine Perry in like an alter universe and a different career, just essentially, you know, being a restaurateur. I mean, I could see it. I could just oh, kind yeah. of see him like owning some Michelin star restaurant in LA. In fact, I'm kind of surprised he doesn't have one almost as an investment. Like, why not? I don't see why he doesn't. Yeah. He does seem, yeah, he definitely has the personality of the guy who's like walking around talking to every table. Exactly. Yeah. Meeting people, you know, getting, organizing like the food critic to come down and Uh et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. He's got a really good sommelier working for him. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It all makes all the sense in the world. Now, I do, the one... The one problem is I'm pretty sure that Dave Navarro is vegan now. Mm. Mm. Maybe Perry Farrell is as well. I'm not 100% sure what their dietary restrictions are. Uh Mm -hmm. I mean, it it hasn't always been this way. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Jane's addiction was a moment in time. Well, did they eat? I mean, they're kind of like non-fooditarians, I think, like for a while. I I mean, you know, in Jane's, Jane says when, when she says she pulls her dinner from her pocket, she's not talking about food. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. she's, she's no. talking about her fix for the night. Right. That's dinner. Yeah, I don't know how much food they consumed in those early L.A. days. Sure, no. Eritarians? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're skinny guys. I, I remember Perry talking about when he was skinny, he just didn't really like to be 
in cold water or anything mm-hmm. like that. For sure. That was one of his things. Yeah. So, I mean, especially after he started doing all the heroin, he couldn't really surf anymore because he was just so freezing cold. Oh, he couldn't go out anymore. Probably too physically weak too to do that much that much paddling. I mean, surfing is hard hard work. Have you ever tried surfing? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you so you, have you gotten up? Um, caught a wave. Mm, yes. Nice. Yes. No, uh, um, for like one and a half seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I have caught waves, um, and I was terrible at surfing. And and looking back, had no business surfing like some of the places that I surfed. Uh, had a, like a, you know, not what I would call a near death experience, but at the moment felt relatively near death. Um, wow. Surfing south of San Francisco and Pacifica, mm-hmm. um, south of Pacifica even, and, and just got caught in a current oh, and, and couldn't, couldn't paddle back to the little cove that I had started from and then kind of calculated like, all right, I guess I'm going around this big rock outcropping. And who knows, you know, what's going to happen there. And uh, fortunately, this had happened to somebody else because I found a rope that had been that had been hung from the top of this bluff that I had to then climb up. Holy crap. Pull my board behind me. And I think that was the last time I went surfing. That sounds like the last time (laughs) I would go surfing, too. All right. You know what? I think we've done plenty of talking. How about we get to eating? Let's do it. Thank you so much for having me over and cooking this delicious pasta. Dude, it's d- so good. Delighted. Thanks oh, for man. having me. Absolutely. Enjoyed. I, I learned a lot about Jane's addiction today. Awesome. Yeah. I did too over this past week. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of uh, research. I read, there's a book called Whores, which is kind of an oral history. I highly recommend. There's also a online video that you can see of, it's like a two-hour interview of Eric Avery talking about... Uh, his second departure with Jane's addiction, which sounds like uh, really rubbed the the hairs of the other Jane's addiction members in the wrong wrong way. Why was it wrong. just too self-aggrandizing, or what well, was it? No, it was more him just kind of like you know making Perry seem like a big giant pain in the ass. Yeah, which, sure. Yeah. I, I don't have any reason to think that he's not anything other than a big giant pain yeah. in the ass. Yeah. I, I don't think that he means to be. It's just his head is just mm-hmm. rooted in art and not mm-hmm. really reality. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, it is to a certain point, but he sort of needs, you know, de- decoders to to take the good parts of what's going through his head and yeah. and putting those out there and like less of the bad things. So it's kind of weird, but whatever. You 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 need you needed Perry for any of this to happen. And I needed you to make this delicious pasta and save me from trying to make terrible Mexican food. <laughs> so, anyways, All thanks right. again, Nick. We'll, uh, bon appetito. Bon appetito, everybody. Ciao, ciao. Bam! Thank you for tuning in to another episode of This Bank of Beer Food, Season 2. What's on the menu? What can you expect this season? Well... I have some guests lined up. We're going to be talking about uh, The Who. We're going to be talking about Joni Mitchell. I have another episode with uh, my good buddy Charlie Schmidt about Alice Cooper. From there, who knows? Let's see. It depends uh, what rock stars die this year. Do you have any requests? Why don't you send them my way? You know what? Somebody uh, recently said Dire Straits. Maybe I'll talk about Dire Straits. I'm up for anything. Remember, if you're in Asheville, North Carolina, or you're passing through, grab a cup of Asheville's finest Izzy's Coffee. Delicious. 
If you're doing Facebook or Instagram, make sure you subscribe to our channel, This Band Could Be Your Food. Check out the website, www.thisbandcouldbeyourfood.com. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. This Band Could Be Your Food. How many times do I have to say it? This Band Could Be Your Food. Darn it. Great. All right, September's very busy for me, so I don't know when the next episode's coming out, but keep your ears and eyes and nose peeled for more food and music with me, Nathan Palin, signing off from Brooklyn, New York, saying cook on and rock out. Ciao, ciao.